The rest of us are going to be talking about something none of us want to talk about. Something that none of us like, and that is correction. Nobody likes to be corrected, because if you have to be corrected, it means you are wrong about something. And who likes to admit when they're wrong? I certainly don't. And yet sometimes correction is necessary, isn't it? It's absolutely necessary. And oftentimes, as long as enough time passes, you can actually be thankful that someone loved you enough to correct you. And so we're going to talk about what we don't like. That's being corrected. Uh, it is necessary at times. And hopefully, if it's done right and appropriately, we're thankful eventually. Think about how life is. If you're flying an airplane or on an airplane and you're off course, well, you may not be, you, you won't be happy that there had to be a correction and you're going to arrive at your destination late, but you can be glad that you're going to arrive at your destination. Uh, if you're a college student who is taking classes that aren't going toward your degree and your advisor tells you that, well, it's not good news. You don't like being corrected, but in the long run, you're glad so you're not wasting your time and your money. If you're in a relationship that's a destructive relationship and somebody tells you about it being destructive, you might not like hearing that, but if there's opportunity for correction so that it's not leading to destruction, you're happy. And, and you know where I'm going now. And the list could go on and on and on and on with corrections. Well, today we're going to talk about the granddaddy of them all. We're going to talk about the greatest correction, the most significant correction, the most important correction, therefore the potentially the most offensive correction. And that's being corrected about how we view Jesus. Some of us need a correction, a mid-course correction in how we view Jesus. If someone asks you, who is Jesus, based upon the way you would answer, you might need a corrective. You might need some change in your thinking, in your perspective. And right now, some of you are putting your walls up and you're thinking, who in the world are you to tell me I need a different perspective of who Jesus is? If I'm sitting where you're sitting, that's what I'm thinking too. The difference is, this morning we're going to give the microphone to the authority on the matter. The difference is, this morning in Luke chapter 12, we're going to have a corrective about who Jesus is from the authority on who Jesus is, because we're going to have the corrective come from, you guessed it, Jesus. And he issues a strong corrective to those who were around him in the first century. And by way of application, that corrective has been necessary ever since then and is even necessary now. Think about what it would have been like when, when people were waiting for Messiah to come, waiting for the Christ to come. And, and some would say, He's going to bring wealth for me. Others would say, when Messiah comes, He's going to, he's going to bring universal world peace. When Messiah comes, He's going to bring relational fulfillment in all of my relationships. When Messiah comes, He's going to bring me political power. When Messiah comes, He's going to bring fulfillment in every area of my life. And on and on the list could go. And on and on the list goes with us. We have all these perspectives about what Jesus brings to us. Some of them are right. Some of them are 
partially right. And some of them are just out there. Thankfully, Jesus, talking to people not unlike you or unlike me, talking to people like us, He talks about these surprising things that He brings. When Jesus comes, He brings surprising things. We're going to look at five surprising things that Jesus brings. It's another way of saying five surprising ways of describing Jesus. They surprise these people. They surprise us oftentimes. And uh, we're going to probably be a little surprised. And maybe we'll have our feelings hurt a little bit, but it'd be better to have our feelings hurt a little bit if need be instead of just sort of having the mindset of don't confuse me with the facts, I know what I believe. Right? These would have been those kinds of people oftentimes, just like we are. We have a view of who Jesus is. Jesus is kind enough, gracious enough, truthful enough to say, that's not right. So when you hear these correctives, you're going to think, man, Jesus, he's kind of a mean guy. Or you're going to come to the conclusion, Jesus cares enough to set the record straight. And I'm going to really try to help you emphasize the latter. He cares enough to not leave you thinking wrongly about the most important person ever. We want to know who Jesus really is, and Jesus is going to help us with that. So Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 59, five surprising things that, bring, that, that Jesus brings when he comes. And what I'm about ready to read is probably enough to get me fired from lots of churches. Or if you were a pastor, if you read these words, minimally explain them, just point out the obvious, and say you agree, I guarantee you'd be fired from lots of churches. Because it may not be what we want to hear. But isn't it better to be in touch with reality instead of being delusional? Well, yeah, it's a good corrective. So, number one. Number one, Jesus brings judgment upon the earth. Jesus brings judgment upon the earth. That point in an outline probably wouldn't even be allowed in some places. Thankfully, it's allowed even now here. Number one, Jesus brings judgment upon the earth. Put your seatbelts on, folks. We're about ready to experience turbulence. Um, Tray tables up. Seats forward. Verse 49. I came, Jesus says, to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I came. This is a purpose statement for Jesus. He has multiple purpose statements. It's not his only purpose statement, but make sure that we understand that it's nothing less than a purpose statement. I came to cast fire on the earth. And then he even talks about the desire to get on with it. And would... My desire is that it would be kindled even right now. What are we waiting for? I'm eager to fulfill my purpose on earth. And it has to do with fire? That's a shocker for so many of us. We, we, we think, now that's not the Jesus I learned about in Sunday school growing up. He says, I came here to bring fire. Now, if you have uh, an understanding of the Old Testament, which these folks would have had, and many of you do, not everybody does, but they would have had, they would have known that not always, but many, many times, fire is associated with what? 
It's, it's associated with divine judgment. Time and time again, it's associated with divine judgment. And in Luke's gospel account, Jesus has already been using fire in that same Old Testament way. His disciples have been as well. Listen to Luke chapter 3, verse 9. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment kind of speak. Luke three seventeen. His, God's winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, this harvesting image, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's no question he's talking about judgment, fire and judgment, fire and judgment. The disciples, they know their Old Testament as well. They know how Jesus talks and thinks. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Judgment from above. It's not something we like to hear about. It might not be who Jesus is to you. But it is who Jesus is. By purpose. By aim. And isn't it interesting that Jesus is even saying, and would that it would be now. I came here to do this. Let's get on with it so I can do what I came here to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm glad this isn't the only perspective we have on Jesus. I'm glad this isn't the only thing he said about himself. Jesus is love. And Jesus came because of God's love for us. Jesus loves us to give himself up for us. But what we need to understand and know that really his love isn't going to make a whole lot of sense apart from the context of, of judgment. And, and don't just take my word for it. We're going to actually see that unpack as we work our way through the passage. But make no mistake about it. Jesus brings, surprisingly so, divine judgment. Jesus brings divine judgment. And he's even eager to bring divine judgment. Now, let's, let's just pretend like we're being critical of this because I know no one is stupid enough to be critical of this. Let's just pretend like we were being critical of this. We could be critical if Jesus... Well, let's, let's put it this way. We could be critical if judgment were inherently wrong. But no one in this room thinks that judgment is inherently wrong. Everyone in this room, I know for sure, at least has some place in your perspective on life where there should be judgment. There should be justice. There should be fairness. All come from the same idea. Something built in us. We, we want justice. Maybe not when it's us doing the wrong, but when other people are doing wrong to us, we want justice. We could criticize Jesus if, if, if justice were inherently bad. But it's not. We could criticize Jesus if he himself were not inherently just. If he himself were not inherently righteous, fair, clear thinking, right. But he's righteous, altogether righteous, altogether just, altogether fair. We could criticize Jesus if human beings were essentially good. But they're not. If we all were inherently good, for Jesus to come on the scene and say, I came by purpose to bring judgment on the earth and I wish that it was happening even now. If we were inherently good, we'd say Jesus is bad. But if we're lawbreakers, unrighteous, 
promoters of injustice, breaking God's law. Jesus is just and fair. And justice has its place. Jesus is actually longing for something that's right. Oh, by the way, right, righteous, just, justice, same word group, same concepts. Jesus is right in wanting this because it's a sin-cursed world. And he sees things for what they really are. I don't know about you, but that's good to understand here, but it's still unsettling because we're not to any good news yet. So if we were questioning Jesus, it would be strike one, strike two, strike three, we're out. It's not wrong for him to want this. It's actually right for him to want this because of who he is, because of who we are, and because of the nature of justice. By way of application, I think now maybe we can all have a better appreciation for why at the launching of Jesus' earthly ministry, the universal call to all people was repent. John the Baptist, that was his message. It was Jesus' message as well. Repent. Why? Because first and foremost, fundamentally, to repent means to change your mind, to change your perspective. Oh yes, behavior might follow that, but the idea is most importantly, first and foremost, you need to have a different perspective here. Jesus shows up on the scene and, and what is he doing? I've come, I'm come to judge and, and I'm eager to judge. It's my purpose to judge. Wow, no wonder John the Baptist says to people like us, repent. You don't want to be on his bad side. You don't want to have your view of Jesus. To me, Messiah is. To me, Messiah is. Who's Messiah to you? John the Baptist says, repent of your who is Messiah to you. It's time to have right thinking about who the Christ really is. If He's come to judge, it's really important that you're thinking the right way about who He is. So you're going to believe in Him. You're going to be ready. As repentance was in order in the first century, surely you can agree with me that repentance is in order in the 21st century. We need to have a fundamental shift and realignment in thinking about who Jesus really is and have it not come from us because we don't define Jesus. It's got to come from Him. It's got to come from Him. And again, here's an opportunity for us, by the way, to repent. But here's an opportunity for us to do the awful and wrong and stupid thing and that's to sit in evaluation and judgment of Jesus. I mean, of in all places, in all passages, that would be cosmically wrong-headed. <laughs> but the fact that we are tempted to do that just shows how cosmically wrong-headed we are. He's the judge who's eager and anxious to do what's right, and we're saying, well, I don't know if Jesus should be like that. It just shows how fundamentally um, skewed we are. But by God's grace, we would want to repent. By God's grace, I would want you to repent. By God's grace, I would want to repent and, and have my thinking reflect reality. Surprising thing Jesus brings here. He brings judgment upon the earth. Let's move to another one. Number two, another surprising thing that Jesus brings, another surprising revelation of Himself. Jesus brings judgment... Not upon the earth this time, but upon himself. 
He brings judgment upon himself. And this is going to help us to understand the gospel better. Uh, It's going to help us to see how one and two are so important put together that the judgment has to come, but also it's judgment upon himself. Um, Before we read the next verse, just for clarity's sake, I don't mean Jesus inflicts the punishment upon himself. Um, What I mean is he comes for this purpose to voluntarily have this happen to him. Okay, That's what I mean. He brings judgment upon himself. Look at verse 50 with me, where we read these words. I have a baptism. This is Jesus speaking. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So there's definitely a shift here. He's bringing the judgment, and now he's going, to be quite blunt, he's going to experience the judgment. Or he's going to experience judgment. Baptism. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Well, he's not talking about his actual baptism because in Luke chapter 3, he was already baptized. But sometimes the Bible speaks in metaphors, word pictures. He's using baptism metaphorically. He's not talking about his actual baptism. He's already been baptized to identify with the human race. The baptism of John. Here he no doubt is speaking metaphorically. I have a baptism to undergo. You say, what's the picture? What's the metaphor? Well, whatever it is, it's not good because keep reading. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. So whatever the metaphor is picturing is going to be something of great anguish. Something he's not looking forward to. He just said, let's get on with it, if you will. Because he wants to fulfill his purpose in coming here. And yet, this baptism he's going to undergo is one that's causing him grief and anguish as he anticipates it. We have a good clue of what he's getting at. We won't take the time to go there, but in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, as a good cross-reference, Mark 10, 38, where Jesus talks about having a baptism and and, and talking about a, a cup, where the cup describes the judgment of God. The cup is going to be consumed. The baptism there as a parallel, it's judgment. I have a judgment to be immersed in, if you will. Surrounding me, consuming me, I have a judgment to be baptized in. That's what would cause him to be in anguish. He knows the clock is ticking on the divine time frame. His face is set toward Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. He knows why he came to this earth. Surprise, surprise to some of his disciples. I came to be judged. Awfully so. And here's where we as Christians know a little bit more about the story. We can see a little bit with better vision. And we say, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about Matthew chapter 27 on the cross where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that he's not asking that question because he doesn't know what's happening. We know that he's asking that question as an expression of great grief and a great expression. He knows exactly what's happening because he is undergoing that baptism. Divine judgment. 
or as first Peter says, he's there for the, the, he is the, the just, the righteous one for the unjust, for the unrighteous, for us, his substitutionary work. That's what he's going to go and experience. And for us as Christians, we say this is the good news. I mean, we were singing about the glory of the cross, the wonderful cross. Whenever I sing that, I'm, I'm thankful and I like that song a lot, but I'm also thinking the horrible cross. For Jesus, it was the awful anguish vision of the cross. There's nothing wonderful about it other than He's going to succeed in accomplishing a perfect redemption. But Jesus, when He came, didn't merely come as the great, great example. He didn't merely come as the great, great example of moral virtue, even though He was both of those things. But some people now, just like then, would have the, well, that's who Jesus is to me perspective. And Jesus is making it clear, I have a judgment to undergo. I have a baptism to undergo. And it is, did you notice there, greatly distressing to me until it is accomplished. That's who Jesus really is, whether or not he's, he's that to me or not. I want him to be that to me. I want him to be that to you, but that is who he is. And he graciously, lovingly, kindly, mercifully, truthfully is setting the record straight so that we don't have to just believe anything about Jesus. Just as a, an interesting um, kind of note in passing. This is a helpful verse reminding us that Jesus isn't merely a martyr. Now, as you look at verse 50, why, would, why do you think I would say this helps us to see that Jesus isn't merely a martyr? The reason I'm saying that is because there have been martyrs throughout the, uh, throughout the history of humankind and even Christianity, other religions as well, who have faced their execution with calmness, seemingly peaceful, willing, no anguish. And I certainly wouldn't say, I don't know anybody who would say, Jesus is merely a martyr, he just isn't as good as the other martyrs who did that. He's more than a martyr. The reason I would say he's more than a martyr, and this verse helps us to see that. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. You see, he isn't merely going to die for a cause. Great distress, great anguish. Why? Because what he, the corridor he's looking down is the one that has the wrath of God at the end of it. And that he will go and give himself up to be punished as if he committed every sin of everyone who will ever believe and whoever has believed. Anguish. If he wasn't a substitute in his death, as the best martyr, there wouldn't have been any anguish. But there's anguish. He's going as a substitute. It's an awful, awful thing he's going to experience and undergo.
in addition, I want you to notice a couple of important things. Do, do notice that awesome word. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Uh, that, that wonderful final word in an awful passage. And that's the word accomplished. Until it is accomplished. Notice that important word. You don't need to know Greek to know that it's significant. It's the Greek word teleo. I'm just telling you that because we're going to see it somewhere else. But you don't necessarily need to know that. It's a good rendering. Accomplished. Complete. Finished. I came with this aim and the aim will lead in success and it is finished, done, complete. I say that's awesome and worth knowing. It's awesome and worth knowing because he's looking forward to the cross. Looking forward and not looking forward. You know what I mean. To accomplishing something where the work will be done. It's the same word we do hear from the cross in John's gospel account when Jesus says, you know what he says, it is finished. It's all looking toward that completed work. And here's where it gets so good for us. Jesus isn't the great example to show you the way. Jesus isn't the great leader on the religious treadmills of the world. And spiritually speaking, we should all hate treadmills. Literally too. But anyway, that's another topic for another conversation. Jesus is not that kind of Savior. Let me show you how to do it. I came to undergo an awful baptism, an awful judgment, and I came to undergo it, and I want you to know there's great anguish involved here, but it is with a view toward accomplishment, finality, finished, done, work complete. That's why we as Christians talk about resting in Christ. That's why we talk about, talk about trusting in Christ. That's why we're, we're, our, our faith is trust. We're just depending upon what He's already done for us makes Christianity, true biblical Christianity, different from every religion on the planet. And Jesus is making it clear here, just from a different angle, it's going to be accomplished, done, finished. It's fantastic. It's extraordinary. So do see the link there in our verse with John chapter 19, verse 30. It is finished. Maybe one more thing to observe here before we move on to the next one, and that would be that, that distress. He talks about his great distress until it is accomplished. Just think with me a little bit about the connection there where he talks about his great distress, and then he uses that word, until it is accomplished. So the great distress isn't only going to be limited to what happens when he's at Calvary. He's talking about then and there, looking forward to the cross at Calvary, distress, anguish. The reason I think that's important is because sometimes we have too, uh, too narrow of a view of Christ, His work, and His suffering. We would never ever want to detract from the significance of what happens at Calvary, but we need to make sure we understand that from being born into the human race, 
He's identifying with us. He himself, not a sinner, but around sinners 24-7 his whole life. He wasn't broken himself, but in a broken world, broken surrounding, all the injustices, all of the people not seeing him for who he really is. And his whole life has been that sort of anguish. And it's going to hit its climax and its high point, low point if you want to, when he goes to the cross. So it's anguish Not just then, but the whole life of anguish. And now I want you to read your Bible that way. You say, God loved me so much that He sent His Son to die for me. That's absolutely true. And it's speaking as a point of climax. But God loved you so much that He sent His Son, and His Son, His whole life has been suffering, looking forward to that awful work on the cross. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 where he talks about the death of Christ and the humility of Christ. And he says, even, right? Even death on a cross. Exclamation point. The, the most awful. But when you think about God's love for you and you read the gospel accounts, just know his whole life, 24-7, always doing righteousness, and being treated as if and experiencing world, a, a world around him that was anything but. And again, now we can have even better, richer, more uh, a full perspective. And you say, you know what? God loves us in an amazing way. It's not just sentimentalism. It's not just some sort of sappy, serendipitous kind of thing. It's this extraordinary work of Christ 24-7 for his whole life. And then that to atone for our sins. And you see how it makes sense now, even more sense with judgment involved? He gives himself. What? How, to do what? To be judged. And yet he's the righteous one. And so I realize his sermons are, are kind of hurtful in the sense that, you know, it, it hurts to be corrected. But, you know, it, it's a gracious affliction <laughs> that he afflicts you with. Pat, I love you. Let me tell you how cosmically you wrong how cosmically wrong you are about me. That's grace. That's kindness. So that I'm not left in that spot. We're not going to take the time to go there, but I think of, of Jesus in John 15 where he talks about there's no greater love than the one who lays his life down for his friends. Well, that's... Jesus laying his life down for his, his friends, his disciples there. And he's showing his love by, by giving himself over to be judged. Because I'm not saying you believe this, but you, you probably know people who think that, you know, this is, this, is not, this is not what love is about, to have Jesus judged. Well, Jesus says actually exactly what love is about. That he loves us so much that he would personally, voluntarily bear the full weight of divine fury for us. Let's move on to number three. Number three, Jesus brings division, not peace. He brings division, not peace. Shocking, yes. More than a little shocking, yes. Before we actually get to the verse, let's at least set it up and consider how shocking it is. Jesus brings division, not peace. I promise you that's what he's essentially going to say. But don't take my word for it. We're going to get to it in a second. But let's talk about our experiences for a second. 
when you become a Christian, it's highly possible that you are so excited to think that you have peace with God, a la Romans chapter 5, right? We have, we have peace with God, no more conflict, and it happens by faith in Christ. We have peace with God. Christ is a great mediator. We trust in Him. Now we have peace with God, no more conflict. It's restoration. When I experienced that in my life, it was so exciting. And if you're a Christian... When you trusted in Christ genuinely and you came to understand you had peace with God, it's exciting, right? This is thrilling. This is awesome. And, and, and I'm so naive. I'm so naive that I'm under some kind of illusion that everybody I know is going to be excited. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking... When I tell people that I now have peace with God, I explain the gospel to them, and I explain it to them, I'm quite confident that many people I tell are going to tell me that they too have had that experience. They've trusted in Christ. Or, or, especially, you know, I just think people are going to think that. And they're going to be so happy for me. Or people who, who don't know that and haven't heard that, they're going to be so excited because I'm going to bring them good news. And it's so clear, and it's so understandable, and it's just so... Right there makes sense. It's not irrational. We're not saying close your eyes, take us on faith, even though it means nothing, even though it's nonsense. No, 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 no. We're talking about real life, historical events, the work of Jesus. And if you trust in him, you'll have peace with God. It's awesome. Everybody will be excited. And you're going, right? Right? you find out pretty fast that's not true. You think it should be true? I'm not smarter. I'm not better. This isn't something I fig- you know, figured out because I'm so smart. I-, I just want to tell people the simple good news about Jesus and surely they'll believe. Oh, and not only that, if we can have peace with God on a vertical level, I mean, that's really going to solve our issues, isn't it? Because if we have that in common, and that's the greatest need we could possibly have, if we have the vertical level taken care of and we have that in common, we're going to have the, the, the horizontal, horizontal, right? Is this horizontal? I get them confused. Um, <laughs> it's going to take care of itself. That was just my long setup for Jesus surprising us. Verse 51 says, Do you think, by the way, yes, I did. (laughs) Do you think that I have come? Another statement of purpose, of intent, why he's here. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. I mean, at least at first, that's a devastating one. Now remember, Jesus also is, is not one-dimensional, okay? There, there are other passages, other things we need to talk about, we're not talking about today. We read from Micah chapter 5 today, and he does bring peace in a certain sense. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he is prince of peace. But here Jesus is making it clear and setting the record straight that he's not one-dimensional, and there's another sense in which it's very real and genuine that he didn't come to bring peace. He says it right there, doesn't he? I came to bring division. Brace yourself for this one. This is a toughie. 
Verse 52 says, For from now on, in one house, okay, that, that rationally, logically, um, is a unified house because there's only one. So when you just look at it, okay, there's going to be unity in that house because there's only, it, it's one house. There will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother-in-law. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law or against mother-in-law. I guess I can understand the in-law thing, but the other stuff is bad attempt at humor. But What's Jesus' point? As you relate to me, and you trust in me, given who I am as the center of everything in the universe, the one who matters to everybody because of who I am, as divine judge, as the unique Savior, based upon how you relate to me, you will have peace or conflict with other people. It's not that Jesus is somehow bad for creating the division. He actually logically should bring the, the, the unity. It's because of human hearts that are bad that causes the division. And by the way, my offhanded in-law comment actually should be stricken. His point is, these are the most natural unifying relationships. Generally speaking. As a truism. Sure, there are family fights and all that sort of thing. But generally speaking, I'm more united with anybody on the planet. I'm not, not any more united with anybody on the planet than my own family. Naturally. That's his point. And he's saying, you know what? May not be the case anymore. Because of the nature of who I am. And I affect everything. Now, once again, we can kind of think, you know what, this is, this is a bad deal. Or, we can see Jesus as the truth-telling, gracious, compassionate Savior that He is. And we can say, we're so thankful that He told us that this is how it could be. Your profession of faith in Christ is not the problem. Christ is not the problem. You're acting rationally. <laughs> Supernaturally so, yes. But, it, but it's reasonable. The problem is the sinfulness of the human heart that rejects Him for who He is and says, to me, Jesus is. But see, it's so good and helpful for us because these conflicts are real. They don't plague every family to the uttermost, but they plague many families. And if they don't now, they might some other time. I don't know the whys and the ins and outs to the nth degree, but we have to know that Jesus is really, really helping us, at letting us know this ahead of time. I mean, I want so badly to have the best relationships with my kids for the rest of my life. I just want them to get better. And with the people in my own family, that's just normal for us to want that. And by God's grace, sometimes it's true. But it's not always true. 
Sometimes it might even cause us to say, well, is the gospel I believed in not the right gospel? Is it not the right Jesus? And Jesus here is saying, no, 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 don't go there. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, of the disciples and Jesus talking to the disciples in John chapter 6 when he says something hard. And he says, do you guys want to leave too? And the disciples' response was, well, why would, how, how could we leave? Why would we leave? You have the words of eternal life. Well, I, I can't have a greater loyalty to any one of my kids as much as I love them or any one of my family members or friends as much as I love them when Jesus has the words of eternal life. Allegiance point number one. And some of you older folks get the conflict from your younger kids. Or I got that wrong. You get, you get the point. This doesn't only apply to little kids. It could apply to little kids growing up and getting not so little. <laughs> but it works in all different, all different ways is my point. I'm really thankful for this passage as much as I in some ways wish it wasn't so. And how God uses it and our awareness of this. It's helpful. We pray for them. We earnestly pray for their salvation so that there can be that peace. By the way, just as a footnote, this is a helpful passage in helping us to remember that it's not a guarantee that because you're a Christian, everyone in your family is going to be a Christian. So whenever a theological system leads me down that road, I've got to take issue with that theological system. In some ways, I wish I could say, well, because of who I am, my kids are sealed in the covenant community. Well, that's kind of odd. I don't think Jesus got that memo. So I pray for them. If they're not Christians, that they would become Christians. Jesus didn't come here to make every relationship wonderful. Even though we long for that, we long for Him restoring things at His return. Number four. Number four, Jesus brings rebuke. Jesus brings rebuke. Specifically when we don't see him for who he is. Here we go, verse 54. He, he also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And verse 55 says, And when you see the, when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat. And it happens. Okay, stop for a second. Is that a rebuke? That's not a rebuke. That's an affirmation. That's an affirmation of how, just how adept they are. Just how rational they are. What good observers you guys are. You can watch patterns in nature. And you can know that when this and this and this happens and the wind blows off the Mediterranean Sea, here's how it's going to end up. And you're going to have scorching heat when this happens. It's going to be a cool rainy day when this happens. Jesus is affirming, affirm. What an affirming guy. What he's doing is he's putting that ball on the tee. He's, but just so you know, he's not saying you're incapable of being reasonable. He's not doing that. He's affirming their rationality. You guys are really, really smart people. You're really rational. How about this? You can see the obvious. 
props to you. Then verse 56. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Think about the context. He's obviously the Savior. He's not saying, you know, just take it on faith, even though there's been no evidence. He's, he's not that kind of religious leader. He's been doing everything for every eye to see. He, he's proving himself up to be the one who was long expected and promised. And he's saying, you guys are, are masters in seeing the obvious, and I'm as obvious as you could possibly be, and you don't see me for who I am. You hypocrites. They should have been singing the song we sang this morning. Come thou long expected Jesus, right? Instead, they're saying we still haven't found what we're looking for. Who are the crazy ones? It's not him. I don't mean to stroke your ego, but it's not you either. You're not the crazy one. Remember, in Christianity, faith is not blind. Faith is trusting in objective realities. And if anybody proved himself to be who he claimed to be, Jesus did. Know this too. Unbelief here is not an intellectual problem. It's not a rational problem. Now we could talk about this on more sophisticated levels, but I just want to point out the, the, the obvious. It's a moral problem. Jesus doesn't say, you are so uneducated. Jesus doesn't say, you lack ability to comprehend basic things. Jesus says, you hypocrites. You actually are capable. But spiritually, your heart is darkened, and so you come to the wrong conclusions. You refuse. It's just, just bizarre to think about. Bizarrely obvious. This is the time. I'm the one. You're hypocrites. You're pretenders. Number five, finally, Jesus brings warning. Jesus brings warning. Just need to pause for a second and collect myself. I'm thinking, man, this sounds like a pretty intense sermon. Just in case you want to know my thoughts. <laughs> this is like heavy duty, isn't it? I, I just have to remind myself even now and, and hopefully remind you, yeah, heavy duty, Jesus speaking truthfully. Because he's mean? Because he's honest. Because he's honest. I would again say, this is recorded for us because he loves us. 
cares for us and He wants us to know reality. Jesus brings warning. I think this is an analogy. By the way, the verses we're going we're gonna to read, 58 and 59 in just a second. If we just take these out of this flow of context, I think we might draw different conclusions. Um, but time and time again, I think, as one person said, the three most important rules of Bible interpretation are context, context, and context. Um, we're, in context, I think he's, he's using this as an analogy to make a point to people like you and people like me. So let's read it that way in its flow and in its context. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate. Now, when would you do that? You do that if you were were guilty of something or you're accused of something. You've done something wrong. So you have an accuser. You're going to go before the magistrate, before before the official. Make an effort to settle with him on the way. I mean, you can take the approach of, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to budge, I want to go see the judge. Apparently, this is a situation where you've done something wrong. And he says, make every effort to get it worked out before you get to the court. Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, verse 59 says, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. I think that's a warning. It would be much better for you to admit your wrong thinking now. You're wrong about who I am. It would be way better for you to acknowledge guilt now. Because if you're going to be so spiritually hard-headed that you're going to take this to the end, you know what's going to happen? What's going to happen is strict judgment where you'll, you will never get out. Is the idea. Is the forcefulness of it. I think Jesus uses this story to make that point. Swallow your spiritual pride now. Don't take this to the grave with you. It'd be much better to acknowledge guiltiness now and by God's grace, if you will, bigger picture, make it right. See me for who I really am. I think that's what he's getting at. He's he's warning them. There's urgency involved. Do it now. Do it now. Who is Jesus? How about he is who he says he is? Before and if necessary, against who I say he is. Let's leave with that in mind. Who is Jesus? Jesus is who he says he is. Let's also remember that Jesus came here to do what he says he came here to do. As we've seen in our passage. Who is Jesus? He is who He says He is, not who you say He is. Who is Jesus? Or what does Jesus do? He does what He says He came to do. And finally, let's leave by remembering that Jesus doesn't need to repent. Jesus doesn't need to change his mind and his perspective about who he is. Jesus doesn't need to be spiritually realigned in his perspective. 
We do. But so many times we act as if we are God and sovereign and Jesus needs to repent. If your view of Jesus has, even though you wouldn't use these terms, has Jesus repenting, God help you. God help us all to see Him for who He really is. He's a gracious, wonderful, magnificent, powerful, crucified, resurrected, law-fulfilling, ascended, returning Savior who defines reality by the nature of who He is. And so we gather today as believers, those of us who are, we gather to have a common confession. Jesus is Lord. It's a great summary for who He is. Jesus is Lord. Remember that when you go today. Father, thank You so much for Jesus' gracious acts of spiritual realignment. Thank You that He cares enough about us to not merely be polite and leave us in our own sin and our own idolatry, that He graciously and kindly and pointedly continues to say who He is and what He came here to do. By Your grace, grant repentance even here today. And also allow us to live lives that are honoring to Christ, that our deeds, our actions would be keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist said. That we would live for the glory of Christ. That we would speak to other people appropriately about who Jesus is. That we would not be arrogant and prideful, somehow thinking our ministry is to go around correcting people but that we would speak the truth about Jesus. Even if that means conflict. Help us to do so in a way that is winsome, that is truthful, that is genuinely coming out of uh, hearts of love and care. That we really would be seeking uh, to love our neighbor as ourselves because of what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.